0: All right, if I could get you to open your insert that says Summer Psalms, Learning the Songs of Jesus, and invite you to stand for our reading of our text. We're actually going to read it on the, from the back from Romans 8. I'll read it. You listen. This is the word of God, right? I, my voice, but God's words, I didn't print it in there, but before this, it he says, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on talking about how the earth is groaning and we are groaning because sin still has its foothold in this world. But then he says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are looking at Psalm 44 this morning. That is not Psalm 44, but I introduced that Romans 8 passage as an interpretive grid for Psalm 44 as we're making our way through some psalms this summer. And we've quoted Psalm uh, Romans 8 in the last two weeks when we looked at Psalm 42 and 43 in anticipation of this week because Psalm I'm sorry Romans 8 actually quotes from Psalm 44 that pass that passage in verse 36 for your sake we are being killed all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered that for your sake is for the lord's sake so it's pulling that out and we want to let romans 8 be an interpretive grid for us as we read the psalms now we we know too much of the story we know more of the story than what the psalmist did when they wrote it we know that the content of this passage and uh this romans 8 is the end of a larger chapter of of Romans 8 that Taylor is encouraging the middle school and high school youth to memorize this summer, all of Romans 8. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to think about joining them in memorizing Romans 8. Now, I said this without asking Taylor in the first service, so now I have to repeat it. I said, the middle schoolers and high schoolers, if they memorize Romans 8, get a prize. If you memorize Romans 8, Taylor will also give you a prize. But I don't know what it is. I don't know what the prize is. But whatever it is, if you memorize Romans 8, it will be secondary. Because the real prize of memorizing Romans 8 is that you get Romans 8 inside of you. And you have it as a resource to draw on after that. This is a, Romans 8, the whole chapter is just chock full of amazing deep, gospel-rich, identity-forming, joy-inducing, humility-producing truth. The last part of Romans 8, what we just read, I found personally to be the most helpful portion of Scripture for me in dealing with difficulty. In a distressing, in a distressing situation, this is where I come back to. Now, we want to be careful, right, when somebody's in distress— we don't want to uncaringly just say, well, you know, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. When you're in distress, that can be insensitive. That can be a good idea just to sort of drop a Bible passage on and walk away. Not helpful. Also, what's not helpful? Never bringing this passage to bear on our life. Never, bringing, never helping shepherd our friends into the reality that is in this text. Never bringing this text to bear deeply on our own soul when we're in distress or when we're not in distress. Because what we see when we do that is that we have a sovereign God who makes no apologies for his providence and his sovereignty. And we see that he works in and through and in spite of uh, and around the evil in this world. He doesn't cause the evil in this world. He doesn't author it, but he, he, he uh, works in that. He works in and around the sin of others, in spite of the sin of others. And in this, he is intimately aware of how we are experiencing the world. The Spirit himself groans and prays for us, and Jesus prays for us. So think about that. The Spirit of the living God, if you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and he, in our uh, suffering, he helps us in our weakness by interceding with us, praying for us. I had a friend recently tell me that he said, I, in my life, I'm basically prayerless right now. I know what he meant. Like his, his prayer life is, you know, in, in a low ebb. I get it. Been there. Totally understand. You know what he's talking about. But what's also true is somebody's already praying for him, the spirit of the living God. And his, may, his prayer life may, may be on life support, but really he's just not at this moment joining his voice to the voice of the Spirit already praying in and for him. And he has a Savior in heaven at the right hand of the Father who's interceding for him, as do you, as do I. Spirit prays for us in our suffering. And in this, in this, God is working for the good of those who are in Christ. Now, this isn't saying that everything that is happening is good. It's not saying that. It is saying that God works in this for the good of His people, right? Namely, the it is conforming us to the image of His Son. That's what suffering does if, we, as we respond in faith, it conforms us to the image of His Son, uh, the image of Jesus, at least in a couple ways. And this isn't a big exposition on Romans 8. But we're not preaching exegetically through Romans 8 anytime soon. So just st- stop here for one second. We, I, Jesus suffered. Right? Think about the pattern of Jesus' life. Suffering, glory, cross, resurrection. It's, the, the, it's your story. It's my story. This world is groaning. It will be delivered. We are under the, the burden of sin now. Even though there's all kinds of grace, we're, we, we are under the burden of sin and we will be released. Uh, Jesus suffered as we, uh, when we suffer, we are identifying with our Savior. And we are being conformed to his image in character by depending on the Lord. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Not that he was disobedient. he He had experiential depth reality of obedience through suffering and being faithful to his Father. This is how we're conformed to the image of his Son. If you are suffering now, if you are in distress, I don't want to just write it off and say, oh, it's fine, it's good. No, it's probably very hard. And what is happening as you are responding in faith is the Lord is conforming you to the image of Jesus. We need that truth in our life. We need to know also this passage talks about the reality that we're in a world at war with God, and sometimes there's spillover suffering because of that. That's what the Romans eight thirty six is about. For your sake, Lord, we are being killed all day long. We'll see this in a second. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so this, this passage of Romans 8 tells us what is happening, right? The Spirit is groaning within us. This world is kind of shut up under sin right now, even though there's grace breaking through and breaking in. This overlap of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The Spirit is growing. We're being conformed to the image of His Son. God will graciously give us all things with Him. This world's at war. All this kind of stuff is happening. It tells us what is happening and tells us what's not happening. What is not happening in this is that we are not being separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Like, we need this passage. And I think a passage like this, how I've tried to think about it in my own life, is like this is the ground. This is the foundation on which I'm going to live, and this is the the future anchor to which I'm connected. So I want to see all of the events in my life through that lens, like knowing it's going there. It's kind of like when you see the end of a movie and you haven't seen the movie yet, and then you sit back and watch the whole thing, like I wonder how we're going to get there, but I know where it's going. That is this. And that's how we have to read like, and, and read a poem like Psalm 44. We know too much now. Right? So we'll, we, but we still want to let Psalm 44 shape us. And we want to map our affections and our soul movements onto Psalm 44. We, though it will be a little different than Psalm 44, we want to let it shape our soul. I, I gave the illustration last week of trying to teach our kids to hit a baseball. I do that by putting them when they were little, this is a long time ago. I can't do that like with Joshua right now. It's like, like 190, I get crushed. But um, put them on my feet and uh, my hands around there, on their hands, and I want them to feel the way my body moves in the, my swing mechanics, though it's awkward because I'm hovering over them. And eventually they map their swing onto Dad's swing, and then they kind of customize, but it's always sort of following that, that swing path. Um, that's what Psalm 44 is. It's our soul mechanics that we map onto. And we actually did this a little bit, a little bit different illustration. Um, in our statement of faith, I noticed this is the first service and you guys did it too. This is a, a hymn, O oh God, our help in ages past. And some of you know that hymn, but not everybody does. And you, Caleb read the introduction, the first stanza. You read the second stanza with different words, with your words, but with the same tune. You let the tune carry you, you know, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. It's kind of the tune of the hymn. And you said, under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Nobody said, okay, now we're going to do this with the same tune, the same cadence, the same movement. We just all did it together. We used our own words with that same movement. You didn't, like, break into... Gilligan's Island theme song, right, for uh, under the shadow of your throne, your saints have to all secure, sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure, and our defense is sure. You know, we didn't do that. We let that cadence that Caleb set, that tune that Caleb set with reading it, carry us through. And that's what we want to do with something like Psalm 44. We let that, the tune of Psalm 44, carry us through. Even in our own lights. Life, life will give it different words. But that's how it's training us, and we're always doing it in light of the gospel and God's covenant love dis- displayed in Romans chapter 8. So Psalm 44, this is on the inside of your insert. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now stop. A mascal is probably, it's a, we're not quite sure, it's a, probably a teaching psalm or reflection psalm, a teaching through reflection. So while all psalms are poems that should teach us, these are particularly geared for that, and that's perhaps why we don't know the context of it very much. It's sort of context-free, and uh, so it can be flexible for a lot of situations. If you remember the last few few weeks, Psalm 42 and 43 were what we called individual laments. They were in the, an individual out in the wilderness saying, Lord, this is so hard, I can barely make it. Psalm 44 is a community lament. The people together are saying, we as a people are under such terrible pressure. Help us. That's what we're looking at today. Psalm 45 and 46 Taylor will cover those in the next two weeks. 45 is about this king who has come to rescue his people, and Psalm 46 looks forward to this future permanent rescuing. So you've got this this movement here. And the psalm ends not with a change in the circumstances, but with a crystal clarity of the source of hope. And it gets us, it writes the posture of our soul if we allow it to shape us. Now, ironically... In order to get us to hope in the future, this psalm has us look back. Verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did Uh, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So that's the distant past. Our fathers told us about these things. You are my king, O God. There's a typo in there. You are my king, O God. You You ordained salvation for Jacob. Uh, Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For, I, for not in my bow do I trust, nor uh, can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. Selah is a musical notation which means to pause, wait. Don't go on to the rest of this poem yet. Wait, stop, look back, consider what was just said. It, it happens throughout um, the Psalms. And every time when we read a psalm out loud together and that word Salah's in there, we never know if we should say it or not. So half the people say it, half the people don't. But um, it, it means wait. And even though these guys have something truly pressing and problematic going on, the psalmist begins by looking backward, which is super hard. If you're in distress right now, if something is intense in your life right now, you're barely listening to me. Why is that? Because it it has a way of just pushing itself to the foreground of our thought and imagination. We can't stop thinking about things when we're immediately in distress. The psalmist is immediately in distress, so he exercises some discipline here and say, I want to look backwards. Before I think of the present and before I kind of look at the future in hope, if I can, I want to get clear on God's past faithfulness to me. I want to be thankful about that. So he recounts the way God led his people, our people, our spiritual family, Israel, out of slavery and into the promised land. I mean, they did, the, they did the work, and God empowered them. Then he recalls sometime in his life when he was in some turmoil, danger, whatever, you know, warfare back in the day. You know, maybe he used his bow and his sword, but he didn't trust in it. And so this is a little counterintuitive to us to us. I know that. But if we're in a hard place in the present seems this psalm is teaching us that the key to future hope is past thankfulness in some way. If we're in a hard present place, a key or a central key to future hope is past thankfulness. Identifying God's covenant faithfulness in the past. And we saw in Psalm 42 and 43 that we we are we need a call to mind in the dark things that we have learned in the light. Call to mind in the dark things we've learned in the light and that is because it is hard to find things in the dark if you don't already know where they are. Most of the time, maybe 80% of the time, I wake up before my wife. Um, She gets up early but I don't have the gift of sleep. And oftentimes I'll wake up almost always it's pitch black out and we keep our room as dark as possible and as cold as possible. But um, it's just what it, to be dark. I'm also a person that really needs these things, right? So the problem with wearing glasses is when you take them off, you can't see. And if you don't know where the glasses are and can't see the glasses to put them on your face so you can see, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pernicious cycle if you don't know where your glasses are and they're not on your face, right? And nobody, you know, and everybody else is asleep in the house. So I simply put them at the exact same spot on my dresser every single night, every single night except when I don't, and then that's a real problem. But it's just so I don't have to do anything. It's pitch black, out, it's dark in the room, and I'm groggy, and I can't see, and I just, my, on the corner of my dresser, there it is, put my glasses on, go about it. If I don't do that, you know, I can barely see, and i grab grabbed the phone from out in the dock, and I got the light in the bedroom, kind of looking around everywhere, trying not to wake my wife up. It's hard to find things in the dark if you don't already know where they are. Thanksgiving and things we're thankful in our past about are some of those things as well. If, we don't ide- if we're not actively identifying them when we're in distress, I think it is very hard to find them. At least it is for me. So if you're in the light right now, if, you don't, if you're not in distress right now, let's identify some things. And if you are in distress, okay, it's going to be a little bit harder, but it's still valuable, right? So we want to think. Just a couple questions here. What people in your life currently and historically are you deeply thankful for, who, who, benef- who your life benefited from, who blessed you? Maybe you had a tough parent situation growing up. I get it. But was somebody else, anybody kind to you, helpful to you? Maybe a relative, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend. You didn't cause that, right? Right? Identify these people. What circumstances or situations did you particularly benefit from? Did I particularly benefit from? What personal giftings do you have that have benefited you well in your life? You know what? Maybe you're smart. You didn't make your own IQ. It's a neurological reality. IQ is like a, a, a significantly hardwired reality that we didn't create. Maybe you've got a skill. Maybe you can sing. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're athletic. Like all these things you might have developed, but we didn't put them in there. And even the, in, the inclination to develop things is a, it is a personality trait that we often don't create. We can, def, you know, work on it. But uh, what opportunities, what luck have, have we had You know, I I was thinking the first service, I've had the privilege of raising five kids in this church. And one of the benefits they've had, whether they recognize it now or not, one day they'll be hearing some preacher ask them a question, they they can think this. You know, I saw, uh, this is Father's Day, a lot of fathers worshiping with their families growing up. That is a, you know, if you're growing up in this church as a kid, you don't know that that's a rare thing. But it's a huge blessing to your life. Yeah, you know, if it's Mother's Day, I'd say, mo- you know, mothers. But it's like this Father's Day to see men who love their families is a blessing to the children of this church. Right? It's a blessing to everyone. Uh, all these things, guys, that you can l- look back and identify and be thankful for, there's, that is the providence of God and evidences of his covenant love in your life. Even before you were a believer, this is evidence of God's covenant love toward a person who he had chosen from before the foundations of the earth evidences of his covenant mercy and love toward us blessing us now I don't want to dismiss personal responsibility and working hard and all that good wise action but again we're just we're developing what the Lord has put in so we want to look and reflect it's easy not to do that but then we want to thank God specifically Lord thank you thank you for this. If Thanksgiving is not a regular prayer, uh, part of our praying and communication with God, we have a great opportunity to grow in hope in the future by being thankful for the past. And if it's true, that, if it's actually true that key to hope in the future is Thanksgiving for the past, it seems to me that Christians might have a superpower in a world which is very attuned to and fosters anger over the past and is really good at taking offense over the past and complaining about the past and dwelling on differences and feeling slighted and focusing on what we lack and all the negative stuff. It's so easy to do that in our world. And I think it's a, like it's a tragic flaw of humanity that I certainly share in and may lead the way to look back or look around and see everything that we lack, that we think we lack, that we don't have based on what we think we should have. And usually that's like I'm comparing myself to somebody else's situation and say, well, there's a gap, and I'm mad about the gap. I'm complaining about the gap. Think about the things you complained about this week. Even in your own heart, you didn't tell anybody about it. Was it not related to something you perceive that you lack? Rather than looking for signs of shalom, of goodness, of wholeness, of faithfulness of God in our life, say, Lord, thank you for that, and thank you for that, and thank you for that, and thank you for that. Um, the, The psalmist here is leaving out tons of hardship and tons of problems as he does this scope, sweep of history review here. I mean, read the book. There's a lot of thickness about all the problems they had and he's kind of passing over all that, lifting up God's covenant faithful and saying that, that's what I want to see, that's what I want to talk about, that's what I want to dwell on, that's, that's what I want to thank God for. Now, I'm not saying we should deny or repress the hard things, but that we should become especially skilled at identifying evidences of God's grace and compassion in our life and lifting those up and calling them out and saying thank you, Lord, for these things because we do not have a world that will foster that. We do not have a world that has much hope. God has given us a picture here. And I think once we begin doing that, well, being thankful for God's covenant faithfulness in the past, it becomes easier to be hopeful for his covenant faithfulness in the future. Once we begin I, uh, identifying evidences of his mercy in the past, we can imagine evidences of his mercy in the future. So, and I think once we begin looking at we'll see that God has given us a lot to work with. Now, if we stopped right here, this would be a victory song. Walk away. God, you've been faithful to us, our ancestors, and us. Cool. However, verse 9 takes a hard turn with the first word. But, (laughs) it's all good, but, and he gets real about his perspective of what's going on. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies you have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So this is a community lament. He's like not sure of the context, but you know, he's like, "Lord, we're barely making it here. The whole community, we're struggling." Now, it's not so much so, right? This is something that's hard for North American Christians to get our head around. It is true. Increasingly, there maybe is a a hostility in our culture toward Christianity or the church. I I think that's probably the case, and. You know, you might risk being publicly shamed if you don't, you know, have the right opinion on something compared to, you know, according to some politician or entertainer or professor. Or if you actually follow Jesus in some areas of morality that are out of fashion with our culture. there would be public criticism. But guys, did you know that one in seven Christians in this world are actively undergoing persecution for their faith. That's just wild to me. There are seven people in my family, my wife and I, and uh, five kids. If one of the people in our family, and m- many of you know us all, were right now, if I came to you and said, oh, you need to pray for this person in my family because he or she is risking their life. There's some, somebody is trying to kill them because of their faith. You would say, that is terrible. We've got to do something. I can't believe that. We need, we need to pray. Is there something we can do? Is there a way we can extract him from that situation? What's happening? Can we, can, we, can we intervene in some way? One in seven. This is our family, bought by the blood of Christ, therefore in some ways closer to us than our blood relatives who aren't in Christ. So do you know what the, what the nation is in the world that is the most dangerous to be a Christian in is? Some of you might. I didn't. You know why? I'm not very practiced at community lament. I didn't know that Afghanistan is the hardest place in the world right now to be a Christian. But it is. Followed by North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, and India. And I was just reading an article. Nigeria, which is seventh on that list currently, is on the cusp of potential devastation right now. It's the most populous nation in Africa and just on the verge because the radical Islamist group Boko Haram wants to kill your brothers and sisters. And we're tempted to hear that and say, oh, that's a bummer. What are we going to do for Father's Day? Not the Father's Day is not important, but we are not practiced in community lament, I think. I've, just, I've been convicted about this. I've been meditating on this passage this week. I'm like, when have I, you know, because I don't feel that. I don't feel like, and somebody might, you know, criticize me because I'm, you know, preach and teach or whatever and follow Jesus on traditional basic sexual morality that's been the same for like the last six thousand years I don't care about that I don't feel that's painful to me and so i don't I don't think about like our brothers and sisters are dying for their faith I don't think about that so it's a call an invitation to to pray and give ourselves to that but and notice what the psalmist does here he acknowledges God's providence if you if you saw uh, starting in verse nine just listen to him like But you have rejected us. You have made us turn back from the foe. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. God, you have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt to our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations and a laughing stock among the peoples. You didn't author this evil, but God, it seems like you you didn't stop it. And over and over again, you've noticed maybe like for the last three psalms, Psalm 42 and 43 and 44, like the psalmists are like have this real freedom with God. It's a little bit like, whoa, can you talk to God that way? In humility, yes, you can. As a son or daughter, yes, you can. It's saying like, Lord, we feel overwhelmed. This is too much. We can barely make it. He is engaging with God in emotional technicolor for his community. And you say, like, why does the psalmist keep showing us this over and over and over again? We have this freedom to call it to God, and we should call it to God. And then the next psalm, same thing. And the next psalm, same thing. Why does it tell us this so often? Because we're bad at it. Because as soon as distress comes, we have this default mode. We're like, we got to do something else. I'm an orphan. What's going to happen? Oh, no. Oh, wait. The Lord. We have this default mode where it's like, it, it happens, and it, we, without thinking, that's how we respond. We watched a movie last night, Blue Miracle. That is the name of it. I said that the first service. I wasn't sure. Blue Miracle? Yeah. So Blue Miracle is this family movie. It's totally sappy. It's totally predictable. And um, you know they're going to try to Im- manipulate you emotionally. And it's about kids who, you know, orphans in Central America and it's a big fishing tournament. The orphanage is going to get lost if they don't win. And so you know from like two minutes in how this is going to go. And you know that they're going to try to make you cry. And you know, since I uh, became a father, I cry at movies like this. So I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I know where it's going. I know they're going to try to make me cry. And I cry through that whole thing. I It's a default response. It's like, wow, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. Uh, when distress comes, our default response is, I think I'm an orphan. I don't know what to do. Right? We don't talk to our soul. We don't talk to our Lord. We just kind of freak out a little bit. So the Psalms over and over again say, would you engage with me? Engage with me. Engage with me. And yes, you are in a lot of distress, so give words to that. Psalm 44, you might think, well, this is kind of strong language. Are we, Are we? is it okay to pray this way? Guys, the Lord is not surprised that Psalm 44 is in the Bible. Second Timothy 3.16, that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. Through the writers of Scripture, he put it there. It is a tune for us to map the tune of our soul onto, for you and for me. Now, this does cause him to examine the community faithfulness. He's like, have we been unfaithful? And the answer seems to be no, and that seems genuine. Uh, And it's hard to tell sometimes in the Psalms, and just as helpful to know, sometimes what's going on, there's a faithful remnant within Israel where the rest of Israel isn't faithful or the king isn't faithful. So they're paying the price for the unfaithfulness of others. That happens today. You know, even in a secular context, when a nation has a bad leader, they often pay the price for the decisions of leadership. They didn't want that. They wouldn't do that. It doesn't matter, right? That might be what's going on. But the psalmist says, all this, verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, that's in a barren wilderness, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the psalmist is saying, have we been unfaithful? Let me think about this. Now, we're not perfect, but no, there's a faithfulness there. Sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, but still today, Lord, the Lord does allow hardship in our life as correction and training. Not as punishment, but as correction. And sometimes it's just letting us have the consequences of things. This seems to be saying that's not even what this is. There's something actively happening, and it's verse 22. For your sake, Lord, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Something about their connection with Yahweh, something about their connection, we would say, with Jesus, has set them at odds with the world they're in. I found this great quote in a book by Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner is an old and now passed on British commentator, typically very dry. I thought this was a really good quote from Kidner. He's talking about this passage, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. He said, This psalm doesn't develop it, but it implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. If this is so, defeat as well as victory may be a sign of fellowship with him. Let me read it again. The psalm implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment suffering is a battle scar of living in a world at war with God. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. If this is so, a defeat as well as a victory may be a sign of fellowship with him and not of alienation. There's no resolution in this psalm until at until at the end where it says, Redeem us for the sake of your covenant love. Right? We live a broken world, and that happens sometimes. And so he continues in verse 23, awake. Why are you sleeping, Lord? That's, that's on the edge, man. I don't know if I, can I talk to God that way? It reminds us of Jesus sleeping in the boat in Mark 4, storm. He's dead tired. He goes to sleep, and the disciples wake him up like, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? he's like, you're not perishing. I'm with you. I've got you. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your covenant love. And as that, this passage took a hard turn at verse 9 but you have rejected us it takes a hard turn back and the second half of the last verse redeem us for the sake of your covenant love and this is Jesus storybook bible which many of our families use Sally Lloyd-Jones defines covenant love throughout with these words the never stopping never giving up unbreaking always and forever love of God the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. This is the love in which God promises the Old Testament saints that he will make good on his, his promises. He will love them as a father. He will love them as a husband. He will fulfill his promises. He will deliver them. But they did not see the fullness of what we see in the cross. That the covenant love of God wasn't just a thing. It's a person. It's a person. The covenant love of God comes to its full flower in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And as Romans 8.32 says, How will he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? This covenant love of God is the ground on which we live. It's that the future which we're connected to, this person of Jesus who's died for his people, who's been raised for his people, and who now intercedes for you and me. Whatever you got going on in your life right now, that is the most real thing, the covenant love of God. Part of the reason we come to the communion table every week is because we need this multi-sensory reconnection with this love. You know, Jesus, and we'll read it in a second, calls the cup the blood of his covenant, of his covenant love. So, whether you're in the light right now or in distress, we want to look with as much specificity as we can at God's covenant faithfulness in the past. And not just in general, but with specifics, write it out, give thanks, be as honest in the moment about what's going on and feel free to give Technicolor, emotional expression to the Lord in humility. And then we're looking at the future with hope in his covenant love, which he's poured out for us at the cross and which we take to ourself in the communion table. If you're in Christ, we want you to come to the table. We want you to come to the table. Some of you I know come from a background where you say, well, we don't do communion every week where I come from. Well, you're here now, right? So we're coming and we're going to take communion. And if you are, what we say about the table is like, Taking communion is saying I receive and rest on Jesus alone as he is offered in the gospel and I want his lordship in my life. I am actively submitting to it. Not perfectly, but really knowing that he has got me in spite of what I see right in front of me right now. If that is you, this table's for you. I'm going to pray and invite you to come to the table.